Hey, good morning, church, and Merry Christmas. Uh, this is the third Sunday in Advent, and the first Sunday this month that we've, uh, we're taking a break from our series in John and doing a couple topical messages uh, for the Christmas season. And I'm going to tell you um, what we, as the Bride of Christ, have received for Christmas. Uh, we'll be teaching out of Isaiah chapter 9. Um, you can turn there in your own Bibles. We've taught out of this passage before, and you've heard it probably every year that you've been aware there was a Christmas. Um, now, uh, obviously we know uh, essentially what we receive is Christ, of course. He is the gift. I know that's a lot uh, more Christianity, uh, oh, sorry, more Christian Christianese and, and holy sounding to say that it's all about giving and it's, it's, it is uh, more blessed to give than to receive. But if we're going to be doctrinally correct and honest with ourselves about Christmas, the celebration of Christmas from our position is entirely about getting. Um, God is the one who gives and we receive. And we're going to spend our time this morning looking at Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 to see what we receive for Christmas. We will be unwrapping God's Christmas present to us. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, this is a passage you should be familiar with. Let's listen to the word of God. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We'll read verse 7 as well. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judge, judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, we want to worship you well. We want to understand you, to know you well. We want to be with you now. And we see in this text, in this passage, who you are. Uh, and so... Um, let that reality have its full effect on your church. If you're the Prince of Peace, then we want to submit to your authority. If, if you're mighty God, Jesus, who we worship you. Uh, as, as our wonderful counselor, we come to you uh, boldly in time of need to receive grace. We love you. We ask your blessing on your church and our understanding of you in this passage. Amen. Amen. Uh, so this is a great passage. Again, it's familiar to you probably, um, but it's, it's valuable. It's, it's the authoritative and inspired word of God. So our time spent studying this will be time well spent. Uh, we see, let's just get right into it. In verse 6, it begins, it says, For unto us a child is born. And, and that in itself, as it relates to Christmas, is something that has never happened before. Um, God has never been born before Christmas. This has never happened to God before. God was never born. To be born, you have to have a mother, and God never had a mom. But Jesus of Nazareth had a mother, Mary. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And this word born matters. I mean, the, the first declaration of this verse highlights for us the key feature of our Messiah, namely that he is a human. It talks in verse 7, which we read about that uh, he will sit on the throne of David. Um, Jesus is a man who, who came in the, in the line, in the genealogy of the king of Israel. Now the church throughout the ages and probably 
uh, individual Christians also, we veer from one side to another, putting more emphasis perhaps on the humanity of Christ for a while, and then going and emphasizing the deity of Christ for a while, and, and we're, we're going to try and stay balanced, we're always trying to stay balanced and proclaim both of them. You know, it, it's interesting to note that in the, the earliest heresies in the, that the church combated in the first centuries of the church was the belief that Jesus wasn't really human. Uh, they assumed, yes, that he was divine in nature, but, but no, he couldn't have really been a man. And then in the, the 20th century, of course, the main heresies were the opposite, that Jesus wasn't fully divine. Um, and so we, we reject both of those uh, false views, and we, we stay balanced, and we declare both of them in fullness, Jesus fully human, fully divine. Um, and in the New Testament, the doctrine of the humanity of Jesus is important. The incarnation, the enfleshing, is more than God putting on flesh like a costume, but actually becoming human, becoming flesh, becoming man. Now, whenever I talk about the Incarnation, in, in whatever setting I teach on that theological topic, I usually share this quote from Douglas Wilson, and he says, Jesus Christ became a human being, but he did not do, do this as a temporary exercise. He was not slumming for 33 years, only to return afterwards to his old pre-incarnate state. He became a man in order to be our high priest, so that there would be a man praying for us at the right hand of the Father. And he continues to occupy this office and will occupy it forever. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is ever at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Christ is our high priest. Continually, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Doug Wilson, uh, again, this means that the second person of the triune God became a man forever. God is clearly up to something that goes far beyond anything we might be able to imagine. But among other things, this means that if God has invested himself in this way in the future of the human race, it follows that the future of the human race must be stupefyingly glorious. Wow. This is a gift to us. A son has been given. Sorry, not, we're not there yet. A child has been born. Christ has elevated humanity by being born into the human race. And he, he gives every human hope. Since we now have a God who has become man, man can now have fellowship with God. Every man, every man, woman, and child can have fellowship with God through Christ. It's a, Christ, a, a Christmas gift of epic proportions to the entire human race, but especially to each one who goes to this one mediator, only for those who go to this mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. This is the gift that must be opened, that must be received. Continuing in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, unto us a son is given. I'm still getting ahead of myself. It starts off, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This child is born to us. Now, I want to focus on us right there. Typically, uh, biologically speaking, a child is born to parents. Strictly speaking, they're the only one that get the baby. But the extended fam family will argue about that. Uh, when one couple has a child, their parents just got a grandchild. The siblings of the parents just became aunts and uncle uncles, and they received a, a niece or a nephew. That child is born to the whole family. Now, if you look at a monarchy, a royal child is born 
literally to its parents, the king and queen, but just as really he is born to a nation, the whole country celebrates the birth of a future king. At Jesus' birth, it is made clear that not just one nation, but every nation and every socioeconomic class, the poor Jewish shepherds and the wealthy Gentile magi, pay tribute to the child that is born to them, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And one more thing to note on this first declaration of verse 6, a child is born, he became a child, uh, not a, a man, he didn't start that way, he started as a child, just like the normal way. This is the upside-down upside nature of Christmas. Uh, children are needy. Well, God has no need. He has need of nothing. Children are, are ignorant, but God is all-knowing. To come as a human is already such a lowly, condescending act for the King of Kings, but to come as a baby, this is the ultimate humility. It's the riches to rags story of the gospel. He who was rich became poor that we might become rich. Now again, as, as Christians, we, we have to recognize that we are the receivers at Christmas. Yes, we have uh, a mandate to give and be generous and, and, and to serve each other and be selfless in our extreme generosity. Um, but we can only do that when we realize that we have received the gift the presents are for us, and, and the, the present that has been given to us is a child who is born, and this child brings hope. Unto us a son is given. Now the second line. Now it sounds, uh, at first glance, that this is just a redundancy of the previous statement, right? It's just being poetic about the whole thing, but, but no, to be born and to be given are two very different things. Jesus was born of a woman, Mary of, of Bethlehem, but sorry, of Nazareth, in Bethlehem. But Mary did not give Jesus to the world. God gave his son to the world. Jesus was born into humanity, but he was given by divinity. And we see in this twofold parentage the the um, the nature of Christ, and then the mystery of the Incarnation. Charles Spurgeon says things so well, and he writes on this. He says, as Jesus Christ is a child in his human nature, he is born, begotten of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. He is as truly born, as certainly a child, as any other man that ever lived upon the face of the earth. He is thus in his humanity a child born. But as Jesus Christ is God's son, he, he is not born, but given, begotten of his father from before all worlds, begotten, not made, being of the same su substance with the father. And I like that he quotes from the creed there at the end. The child who is born will be fully human. The son who is given will be fully divine. And that child and that son is the same person, Jesus Christ. This point becomes clear when we look at the idea of a son. Whose son will he be? Well, Mary's, and in an adoptive sense, Joseph. But his disciples, who would have known Mary and Joseph, they were friends with Mary, they rightfully say, truly, you are the son of God. Even though they knew Mary and Joseph, they look at Jesus and know, 
God is your father. Matthew 14.33. At Jesus' trial, his accusers ask, Are you the son of God? And he says, You have said so, or it is as you say. The gospel preached by the apostles in the book of Acts says that the son is the... Uh, sorry, says that Jesus is the son of God. Acts chapter 9, verse 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says that the son is the image of the invisible God. And we could go on, but the point is that the son that is being given to us is God's Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The giving of a Son is the essence of the Gospel and that begins with God himself. He is the giver. And this, this giving of the Son is the explicit reason for any sort of Christmas celebration. The Son is given to us. Not just any child, but a son, the Son of God. Why is this significant? Because sons are inheritors. They receive. What does Jesus receive? His inheritance. What is his inheritance? It's us. But if he's a son to us, what does he receive? He receives our sins. This is the ministry of the Son of God. And what do we learn next about this child that is born to us? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Now this is exciting. Uh, the child that will be born will be a king. This was the question of the wise men in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? And, and strictly speaking, this prophecy about Jesus is something we're still waiting for. This is something that has not yet happened, but is still going to happen. The return of the king is not just the best book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's an event that we look forward to. Jesus is coming again to rule and reign as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is coming. This will happen. And as with most prophecies concerning the Messiah, it has already begun. And when we talk about prophecies, we often refer to the already but not yet. That's sort of my favorite phrase in, that I've heard referring to, to prophecies that are, have partial fulfillments and future hope. Uh, sometimes I'll call them bifocal prophecies. You know, you've got the stuff up close for reading and then the stuff far away for, for looking at that's still a long way out. Uh, that The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is among you. And of course we recognize that all authority, Matthew 28, all authority has already been given to Jesus. And as we walk under his authority, live under his authority, submitting our lives to him as our king, then we experience much of what that government will be like when he comes to rule this earth. Jesus will be the king, um, and, and he is a king, and I'm not waiting to call him my king. He will rule, but I, don't, I, I suggest you don't wait to submit to his authority. Every knee will bow, but you don't have to wait to worship. Now we, we see that the government will be upon his shoulder. Christ will rule and reign. And he will be the king. And, and we can continue reading and learn about this ruler that has been promised. It says, and his name will be called. And we've got a really cool list there. But, but stop at that point for now. Now we're not talking about first and last names here. Uh, and when it and talks about his name, it, it speaks about the essence of his character, his nature. 
These aren't just things that you'd slap on a name tag at a meet and greet. Uh, these are descriptions of who this son, this child, this king will be, who he really is. Now, names matter. Uh, this makes sense when you consider verses like, like Psalm 18, verse 10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. What are we running into? Are we running into a word? No, we, we run into and rely on and lean on and protect ourselves in the character and nature of God. We trust him with our lives and everything that is true about him that we call his name, that's what we trust in. In scripture, names matter, especially when God gives you a name. You know, God names Abram, Abraham, which means exalted father. And then this name isn't just descriptive, but prescriptive. It doesn't just describe what Abraham was, childless Abraham. It, it prescribes, it or, puts into order what he will become. Abraham would become the father of many nations. Now the list we have here about the names of Jesus are not just describing something, but foretelling what the Messiah would become, who he would be like. We see his name will be Wonderful Counselor. And, and there's two ways to read that, uh, depending on if you've got King James or ESV, really. It, it, it's either, um, you know, Wonderful Counselor... Uh, or wonderful counselor, uh, counselor who is wonderful, or one word, wonderful counselor. Uh, is his name wonderful, or is the wonderful the description about how counselor is? Now, for this for this study, I'm, I'm assuming that wonderful is an adjective uh, rather than the noun. Um, look at the other names. Each noun is described by an adjective. We have mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so it matters where you put the comma. Is his name wonderful, or is his name wonderful counselor? I think his name is wonderful counselor. Jesus is our counselor, and he's great at it. He's one, he is a wonderful counselor, truly the best counselor you could ever have. But what does a counselor do? Well, they, they listen to your problems, uh, and then they tell you what to do. They give you counsel in how to act and behave. Jesus does this. We are told in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all our cares on him, for he cares for you. That's that first part of, of counseling, casting the cares on the, on the listening ear. Sounds like a pretty wonderful counselor, the, the one who really cares for you. And, and you know, some, some people at Christmas time, this is exactly what you need. Christmas can be hard. And this may or may not be you, but I guarantee you know someone who doesn't look forward to Christmas because um, of tragedy, perhaps in the past year, perhaps uh, a lot longer um, time ago, or some disappointment uh, has, has, you know, colored the holiday for them and put it in a negative light. Perhaps you need a counselor on Christmas. Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Not only is he constantly available to you to hear your troubles, grief, complaints, and confusion, but he has given you the scriptures to encourage, instruct, and equip you, as well as a church which he says is his body to support you for the grieving, or even just for the aimless, uh, even for the irritated, you need a counselor who is close. And Jesus, who took on flesh to become close to you, also sends his spirit to you to become even closer, not leaving you an orphan, but giving you a comforter who will lead you into all truth. And when we get back into our study in John, John chapter 14, we're going to talk a whole lot about that. But you... 
You need a counselor who knows what you're going through, and that's what we see in Jesus, the incarnate deity, as such a perfect fit for this title. He has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He is your wonderful counselor. He, he knows how you have suffered, he knows how you have sinned, and he knows what you need to do next. He knows, and he is capable of doing something about it. Now, counselors give advice and they give counsel, and Jesus has given you his word and his spirit to guide you in what you should do. But he does so much more than that. So much more than that. Because the, the next name on the list is Mighty God. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, which is great. But his name will also be Mighty God, and I'd say that's greater. If he is only a counselor and he is not wholly God worthy of worship, then we will fall into this error um, so aptly called moral therapeutic deism. Okay, moral therapeutic deism is that idea that there is a God somewhere out there, but he basically just wants you to be kind of good and mostly happy. And, and that's a problem. And a lot of people go to counselors for this end because they just kind of want to talk and have someone, feel, you know, tell them it's going to be okay. And, and Jesus enters into that into a counseling ministry to listen to you, to, to take your burdens and your cares and to give you that advice. But he is also God of very God. And we already mentioned that the son who is given is the son of God. But here you have one of your proof texts for the divinity of Christ. Objections to Christ's divinity, whether Jesus was really God, those will always arise in every generation. People don't want to believe that Jesus is God, a very God, or they have trouble believing that a man is really God. But the scriptures unapologetically declare it to be so. And, and if he is not, if Jesus, if the Son who is given is not God, then our Christmas present really isn't of very much worth to us. In, in fact, to place our trust in a Messiah, a Savior, who is only a wonderful counselor and who is not a mighty God, to put our trust in that person is a sin against the very God who promises to save. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 5. Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Cursed, or, or cursed, depending on whether you want to put the accent on that little E at the end. Cursed is he who trusts in man. The child who is born, the human child, would be called Mighty God. And if he is not, and you place your trust in Christ, if you place your trust in a human Christ who is not also completely divine, Jeremiah places a curse on you. Merry Christmas! But the child who is born, the human child, would be called Mighty God. And I will not attempt to explain this mystery. I, I don't think I could, and I, I don't think anyone can fully explain a mystery. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a mystery. And Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness. And he's talking about the incarnation. I will, however, offer you another quote from Charles Spurgeon on the beauty of the mystery and the futility in attempting to comprehend it. Charles Spurgeon he says, this doctrine is to be received as an undoubted truth of our holy religion. But as to any explanation of it, no man should venture thereon, for it remaineth among the deep things of God. One of these solemn mysteries indeed, into which the angels dare not look, nor do they desire to pry into it. A mystery which we must not attempt to fathom, for it is utterly beyond the grasp of any finite being. As well might a gnat seek to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God. A God whom we could understand would be no God. 
If we could grasp him, he could not be infinite. If we could understand him, then were he not divine. Jesus, the son who is given, the child who is born, who is our wonderful counselor, he has a name, and his name is Mighty God. He will also be called Everlasting Father. Now we talked about this last week a little bit in our study in, in John chapter 13, because Jesus, in, in, in the upper room uh, at the Last Supper, he's troubled, he's nervous, and he's saying his final goodbyes to the disciples, and he calls them little children. Jesus, that wonderful counselor who is mighty God, he has this father's heart who cares about his kids, who is, is tender towards his children. Now let's start with this everlasting bit. He is an everlasting father. Each name is a noun described by an adjective, right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. Well, this child has a name, everlasting father. And if you weren't clear enough about the deity of Christ earlier, it's coming around again and you can't miss it. The, the only thing, the only person that can claim eternity as an accurate description of their being is God himself. He dwells in eternity. When we're talking about a child being born and a son being given, it's true that we're talking about an event in time and space where a real child will be born with a real birthday and everything, but, but that child who will be born will not begin his existence at birth or even conception. His life didn't begin at conception the way yours did. His life didn't begin at all. He dwells in eternity. The child that would be born would be an everlasting father. Psalm chapter 90, verse 2. Uh, Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the person who would come to us in Bethlehem. This is what we get for Christmas. Everlasting Father. Now, that father bit can be confusing um, for Trinitarians like us. If you believe in the Trinity, which you absolutely must, uh, you're probably used to being confused because the Trinity is confusing by itself. But it, it, it's, a, it's a truth we affirm that we see in Scripture. We apprehend it, but we never fully comprehend it, just like the doctrine of the Incarnation, like Spurgeon just described, where you're the gnat trying to drink in the ocean. Um, but the, the confusion that this name adds for us is that we're clearly talking about God the Son, unto you a son is given, but his name will be everlasting Father. Uh, Jesus is a father to us. He is also a brother to us, firstborn of many brethren, Romans 8, 29. What, what is this about? Well, first of all, as, as Trinity-believing people, we, we believe that the Father and the Son are distinct persons. That, that means that while they may have some crossover in function, a whole lot actually, they are completely individual persons. In other words, Isaiah 9 verse 6 does not teach that Jesus is his own dad. Jesus is not his own dad. However, he is united with the Father. I and the Father are one. He said that in our study in John several times. John 10 verse 30 uh, as an example. He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14 verse 9. This union with the Father is a union of deity. His name is Mighty God. And it's a unity in purpose. Every person of the Trinity has the will and intention to care for the children of this world as a loving Father would. Jesus shares in his Father's heart and shows that heart of a Father to us. The Holy Spirit also is given to us that we might not be orphans. John 14 verse 18. 
Again, this isn't saying that the Holy Spirit is the Father, but it does say that the Holy Spirit shares in a parenting role. That the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father share the common heart, the common purpose of fathering wayward children like you and me. We see Jesus display that Father's heart towards disciples. In, in uh, John 13, we saw he calls those disciples little children. He does this in Mark chapter 10, 24 as well. Uh, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, You have many teachers, but not many fathers. He's, he's talking about that caring, shepherding work that Christ does and that Paul modeled. I don't know what your relationship with your parents is like, and I'm really not interested in talking about that right now in this sermon, but I do know that Jesus is everything that a father should be. And that that's a Christmas gift that some of you need to receive. That you have been given an everlasting father who is called the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Now we're sounding Christmassy. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Or if you like, peace on earth and mercy mild, whatever that means. Um, but Christmas cards, Christmas carols, even if there's a, a Christmas display of some kind that has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus, Bethlehem, or anything like that, the word peace is still fine, for now at least. It hasn't been canceled. Uh, the, you know, peace can promi uh, prominently be displayed, put right out there in front. But peace at Christmas time, or at any other time, must be found in Christ and Christ alone. The son that is given to us is the prince of peace. A prince is one with authority. Remember, the government is upon his shoulders. A prince is one who, with authority, uh, not just earned, but inherited. Jesus, as the son of God, receives authority over all the creation of God. Matthew 28, again, in the Great Commission, leading up to that, he says, all authority has been given to me. He has authority in the realm of peace. He has authority to make peace. He has the authority, and more than that, he is willing to give peace. Which means it is through him that we, must, that, that we can have peace. It's to him that we must go to receive peace. And there are two ways that Christ is our Prince of Peace, or rather two different ways that we experience the peace the prince's reign, the peace that this prince gives. The prince of peace reigns by first giving us peace with God, and then he guards our hearts and our minds with the peace of God. Peace with God is gained for us by our prince of peace, by his death on the cross. Romans 5 one says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, without that act, we are left as enemies of God. Romans 5.10, Colossians 1.21, um, you know these verses. Peace with God is referring to peace between uh, enemies, <laughs> between two opposing armies that are now forming a treaty or even an alliance. Peace being made between those who are not at peace before. You don't need to make peace with friends. You need to make peace with enemies. Because of Jesus, we are no longer opposed to God. We are no longer opposed to each other any longer. Jesus has brokered peace between us and God as the one and only mediator between God and man. So let's get this Christmas story straight. We have been given the Prince of Peace, not because we are naturally at peace, 
not because we are inherently peaceful, and not because we even have a wholesome desire for peace. We like to stir the pot and make messes. Nor are we given peace primarily to calm us down, or just to give a, give a, a comfortable you know, place to, to nap or something. We are inherently enemies of God. We are darkness. And naturally, children of wrath appointed to wrath. This is why the Prince of Peace comes to us to reconcile us to God. If we have peace with God, that is, if our sin has been dealt with and we have been redeemed from our position of enemy and made instead a, a friend, even a son, an heir, then and only then can we experience the peace of God. Peace with God is positional. You are taken from the, the enemy territory and brought into the home, into the throne room, into the family of God. The peace of God is how we experience that peace. It's experiential. Philippians 4 verse 7 says that, uh, that, that prayer, making our request known to God with thanksgiving, will result in the peace of God that passes understanding guarding our hearts. The peace of God is the assurance of our salvation and Christ's sufficiency. When Jesus says to the disciples in John 14, 27, My peace I give unto you. This is the peace that he's talking about. It's the, the calm, the rest, not in your own sufficiency, but only in Christ's finished work. It is the peace that comes from knowing we are cared for by a shepherd, a father, who has taken care of our greatest needs and has promised to care for us, throughout eternity. Prayer connects us to this God and reminds us of this reality. It's, it's here in this prayer that the Spirit of God cries out in our hearts, puts in our hearts that, that cry of Abba, Father. Now, if we're honest, this is, the most, this is most like the peace that the world thinks it wants. Right? The world wants rest, uh, we, everybody wants assurances, everybody wants comfort, and, and the, the Prince of Peace, our wonderful counselor, he does give a, a, a peace that's kind of like that, but again, if we're really honest, this is not the kind of peace that our world needs most. The people of this earth need peace with God before they can ever imagine the peace of God. And even beyond that, we... We need more than peace. We need the Prince. And, and I would encourage you now as we close to embrace the peace of God and, and peace with God in the only way that you can, by embracing the Son of God, the real gift, the Prince of Peace. You, as people on this earth, as a person on this earth, have been offered the greatest Christmas present ever in this Son that is given. He was born just like you. Uh, he was given just for you. He has authority over you as your God and your King, and over all present and future governments. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? He is the wonderful counselor that you need. He has the wisdom that you need, the advice you need, the counsel that you need, and you can access that counseling session anytime, day or night. But he's more than that. He is mighty God, able not only to listen to your concerns or advise you concerning them, but com he is completely sufficient to address them along with the problems you didn't even know that you had. He is the everlasting Father. He had a Father's heart before you were ever born, before the world was made, and will continue to father you, never leaving you an orphan, into eternity future. 
He is the Prince of Peace who has no has not only the desire but the, the means and the authority to declare you righteous before a righteous judge and to guard your hearts with a peace that will pass your understanding. It's, it's beyond anything you could possibly imagine. These doctrines of Trinity, of incarnation, of eternity, these are truths that are bigger than our minds can handle, but as we throw ourselves onto these truths, as we run into the tower of the name of the Lord, the peace that comes from this trust will be just as unexplainable as the doctrines we put our trust in. It's a peace that passes understanding. Receive this mystery. Receive the Son receive counsel from the wonderful counselor and peace from the prince of peace and parenting from the everlasting father and then worship the mighty God. Lord Jesus, let these things be so. You are who you are and we can't change that at all. You are mighty God. You are the wonderful counselor, you are the Prince of Peace, but Jesus, we ask that, that we as your church and as your children, we would respond rightly to who you are, that we would worship well, that we would walk under your authority, that we would be part of this family. Thank you, God, for giving us your Son. We run into this strong tower of the name of Jesus. Amen.